A lot of us are dealing with the challenges of re-emerging into society after months of quarantine, but re-entry during a pandemic poses much greater challenges for individuals getting out of prison. Enter the Fortune Society, a New York City-based organization that provides essential support for people getting out of prison and promotes alternatives to incarceration. I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. Joanne Page is the president and CEO of the Fortune Society. I recently talked with her via Zoom. Joanne, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you, George. It's my pleasure. So for those not familiar with the Fortune Society, what is the organization's mission? We have a double mission. Part of it is about advocating for criminal justice issues, and part of it is about creating the services that help people return from incarceration and do so as assets to their community. You boil your mission down to three things, believing, building lives, and changing minds. How do you define those three concepts? Well, we have a very deep belief that a person is not the worst thing they've ever done. And we also know that there's a simplicity in how we look at people involved in the criminal justice system as though they were that single act. And people are a lot more complex than that. Often people were victims of crime as well as themselves, often victims of, of domestic violence. Um, the people we serve have grown up in very violent communities. And what we believe is people have the ability to change and rebuild their lives despite sometimes how terrible their starting place was and we also know that hurt people hurt people. So we are a place of healing. We look at people and see them as all that they have the potential to be. And sometimes we see it before they ever see it in themselves. And our goal is to create an environment that brings out the best in people. Uh, we believe nobody comes home from incarceration at zero. And people can back in to build their communities or hurt their communities and their families. And we speak to the best in people, believe that they're capable of more, and then help them create it. And when we do policy work, we do it from a similar place. We look at how, how our partners, our government partners, our sister agencies are doing good work and we try to affirm it. And we look at where what's being done is destructive and we try to implement it. We can faith that institutions can change that we have that people can change and we work for them. How challenging is it to combat that stigma associated with having been in prison? Enormously challenging. I see it as an albatross around people's lives for their entire lives. We see discrimination in housing, we see discrimination in employment opportunities. We see terrible trauma that people come home with that doesn't leave. Uh, we are a country that leads the world in harshness of punishment. And we're brilliant at hurting people. We are extremely poor at healing people. So yeah, it's an enormous challenge, both on an individual and an institutional way. What are the biggest stumbling blocks for an individual when they get out of prison and re-enter society? So the stumbling blocks are internal and they're external. The internal are that people overwhelmingly are people who are struggling with substance abuse and struggling with mental health issues. 
then what we do is we add a layer of trauma from the incarceration experience. We send people into a dehumanizing world. And it, it's ironic because right now with the pandemic, people are experiencing what it's like to be confined to home. What we're talking about is people being confined to a room the size of a bathroom without human interaction, sometimes for 23 hours a day, sometimes for years and decades. So people carry that internal damage. Then they come out and they deal with external barriers. They have been out of the world. They have so much to learn about how to cope with an environment that has changed dramatically since their release, especially people who've done massive time. And then they hit discrimination in jobs, discrimination in employment. They hit enormous stigma based on record. Overwhelmingly, they're people of color and they're facing discrimination based on race as well. And they have missing years in their job history. We also saw an end to college for a long time. And that means that people lost the opportunity to do something that gave them a fighting chance in the work world. Because people who got college education while they were inside benefited from the learning. They also benefited from the credential. And we're just beginning to see that build back again. So the barriers are enormous. They last for life. And in many states in this country, uh, people aren't able to vote for the rest of their lives. What kinds of programs do you offer at the Fortune Society to help people re-enter society? So our programs have grown as we've grown. Uh, I've been at Fortune 31 years, which kind of blows my mind. But we've always provided educational services. We've always provided counseling and self-help. We've always provided some kind of food so people come to us hungry. And we've always provided help in finding a job. What we've layered on over the years has been based on the needs that we see coming to each other. So when I started, I started in 1989. And when Fortune was formed in 1967, HIV wasn't an issue. By the time I came in, it was one of the biggest issues for our population. People either love positive people or careful that they were positive. So we built that in, built in licensed drug treatment, more recently licensed mental health services, because those are the huge issues for the people we serve. We've built a really robust set of alternative to incarceration programs, because if we can work with people before as an alternative to being locked up, we can prevent massive damage and make communities safer and save money at the same time. We backed into housing. We didn't choose to become a housing provider, but roughly 18 years ago, we opened our castle in Harlem because we found that if people didn't have a safe place to live, their odds of building good lives in the community were dramatically reduced. And we've been expanding our housing ever since. We moved into care management because what we're seeing is more and more people being released after decades in prison and people who are locked up have the health issues of people 10 years older. So we put a lot of energy into caring for people and linking people to the medical care that they need when they have diabetes, when they have 
of the host of medicines that older people have. Uh, so we keep evolving our services. Right now we do job readiness training. We do hard skills training. Um, we do supported work for people who've never held a job before, for example. And we're doing a lot of housing. The castle you referenced is the castle that we can see if we're driving on the West Side Highway, right? If we look to the left, if we're driving south, look to the right, if we're driving north. It's 140th and Riverside. We have the only castle in the neighborhood. It had been a Catholic girls' school that was taken by the city through eminent domain and then abandoned. And we bought it on the private market at the right moment in the real estate market. So it's a magical place. So music staff calls it sacred ground because you get to see people finding hope and rebuilding their lives. It's really inspiring. So how yes, we have a castle. How many beds are you providing? How many people can you serve with a place to sleep? We probably house about 400 people a year right now in our various housing opportunities. So we run the gamut. We've got emergency and transitional housing in the castle, about 80 beds. We have an adjacent building. We built it next door that has 114 apartments. And it's mixed housing. Some of it is permanent supportive housing for our population. Some of it's affordable housing for the community. And, you know, one of the stories is how the community went from NIMBY, from not in my backyard, to really taking us in and, and trying to trying to have their family members move into our permanent housing because it's beautiful and safe and hopeful. And then we have about 200 scattered site apartments throughout the city. And in about a year and a half, we're going to be opening senior housing in the Bronx for folks coming out of prison homeless, as well as supporting the senior housing for a larger population living in the building. And then maybe in two or three years, we'll be opening another building in East Harlem. We just built, we just opened a building we're calling Freedom House for 35 to 38 people released homeless. We just opened that as a rental building. You just opened it in the midst of the pandemic? We opened it in the midst of the pandemic because it was needed so badly in the midst of the pandemic. We are rocking and rolling in the midst of the pandemic. We're needed more than ever and we are out there. Yeah, I was going to ask the big question there. How are you helping people transition back into society in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic? How are you doing it? Well, we're needed more than ever. So we did a couple of things. We're running our housing. We're physically present. So we have the physical presence still. We opened a new building that, as I said, is housing about 35 people. We are subcontracting with some other agencies to create beds because what's happening is vulnerable people are being released from prison right now and from jail. But if they're released to homelessness, that's a deadly situation. Less deadly than being kept incarcerated. And we're part of an advocacy community that's working to get people out. But when they come out, what happens? Yeah, we're producing more housing. It's urgently needed and we're doing it. We always have done this, right? We throw ourselves into the breach. And when, when, when we started renovating the castle, I had a dime store magnet that I got. And it said, sometimes you have to take the leap and build your wings on the way down. And we are urgently needed. So we are building our wings on the way down. Uh, we are actually delivering some services virtually better than we did 
when we were doing it face to face. Really? How so? Well, you know, what always frustrated me is that people's greatest time of need is at night. It's on the weekend. It's in their neighborhood. And to the extent that we were landlocked, that people had to physically come to an office during regular hours, we are not being there for people at some of their most urgent times. I think that when we come back to being physically present for all of our services, we're going to keep a lot of our services remote because we can be in people's homes. We can be there when they need us. We can do 24-7 and be there for a crisis. We're doing hard skills training remotely, and we're having 100% attendance and 100% graduation. So I think we've learned some new tricks that are going to make us more effective when the world gets a little closer to normal. Let me ask you this question, though. Not everyone has access to the Internet. How are you making sure the people you're working with have the technology they need to access your services in the digital space? Well, one of the things that happened is we invested really heavily in our IT infrastructure over the previous three years. And it let us transition remotely just about seamlessly. So what we're doing is we're providing people who don't have phones with phones. We have a couple of people moving around in vans. We've been providing phones. In our residences, we've been providing phones with Zoom capacity because in the castle, what really works is the community we've created. We're doing our community meetings on Zoom. We're doing more communication on our management team than we've ever done. And I think it's knitting us together and making us more effective. It's not the same as being face-to-face. -face, but I think we're learning things that will make us more effective once we are face-to-face. -face. And we are doing education. We have a music uh, cafe that we do once a month on Thursdays. So people are singing together. We put together something we call Good Ship Fortune. Because the idea is if you're on a cruise, you have entertainment. You have access to resources. We're all on a cruise together, right? We're in rough waters, but we're making sure nobody falls overboard. And we're making sure for the folks who are locked in their cabins, we're linking them to music. We're linking them to museum tours. We're linking them to tours of the national parks. I spent some time in an aquarium recently. Uh, there are things you can do that are good for the soul that you can access by internet. And what we did was we put together a whole listing of those things from meditation to art to museum tours. And we're enriching the experiences of people who've been locked in a cage and are now having to stay in a small place. And we're showing them there's a whole world out there. I see on your website that you're continuing with your creative writing workshops, your art classes, your acting classes. That's all continuing online. It's all continuing, yeah. And we're going, as I said, to learn things that will make us better when we come back. But we also are doing virtual services, but we're doing physical services. We are making sure, we're doing wellness check-ins with our clients and our former clients. And if they have an urgent need, we have somebody in a van who's gonna meet that need. So we're not wholly, uh, we're not wholly virtual. We're picking up people as they get released from Rikers Island. We're helping in the hotel. They're lodging people. Um, we're inventing things, and I think they're going to be better. 
Did you have to move quickly to ramp up your services when the city started to release more inmates from Rikers and other jails due to the coronavirus because you knew that need was going to spike and spike in a more immediate way? We've had to ramp up our services for that reason. We also know that people are in more urgent need than they've been. Uh, the people who are getting hit hardest by unemployment are people earning less than $40,000 a year. There are folks, you know, are people who struggle to get into entry-level positions, and those positions are laying off people. Um, we were helping people get into the hospitality industry. That's dead. Uh, much of the construction has closed down. The little neighborhood stores aren't there anymore. So unemployment is a huge issue. We're working on linking people to benefits. We're working on helping people get SNAP benefits. We're helping people get lunches and meals for their families. Our people tend to be food insecure in normal times. So yeah, uh, the level of urgency that we're seeing is dramatically greater. The level of homelessness, dramatically greater. The level of desperation, dramatically greater. And that mix of doing virtual services and being physically present is what we're doing now. What are your fears for the future? As you mentioned, unemployment is on the rise. Competition is bound to be stiff for employment opportunities in the months and the years ahead. Are you concerned it will be that much harder for the formerly incarcerated to get a job now going forward? We're deeply concerned about that. One of the reasons we're doing hard skills training, even though remotely, is the more we can help people get credentials, the better we increase their odds. But we have really good job development capacity, and we have employers who've used us for years. Our worry is that some of the small employers won't be there either. So yes, we are terribly worried about employment opportunities for our folks. The other thing is that if you haven't been working, you're not eligible for unemployment. And people coming out of incarceration are not eligible for unemployment. We are seeing more and more seniors coming out of prison, and they don't have a work history, so they don't have Social Security. So they're coming out with medical issues. They're coming out in poverty. Uh, that the desperate straits of the people we served 12, two months ago are going to be dramatically more desperate. How do you help a population like that? One person at a time. We know one life matters. We get donated food, we get we serve hot meals to people when we're open again. We are doing housing, we're doing emergency and transitional housing, but we just scratch the surface of the need. What we do is we never give up on And we will make sure that people have what they need to survive. The housing is the hardest thing. But we can provide a hot meal, we can provide clothing. Um, we're limited in our ability to provide housing. We're doing everything we can to ramp it up. But it breaks our hearts when people are sleeping on the subways because they feel safer there than in the large city shelters. Let's talk a moment about mental health because here you have a population that has been isolated that is returning to isolation. Yes. And we're talking about a population that has addiction history, has a mental health history, and these are things that exacerbate depression, exacerbates all of it. Fear about hunger. 
pitches people into crisis. So what we're seeing nationwide is a fear about what we call deaths of despair, deaths through addiction, deaths through suicide. You know, our population starts in crisis and we're talking about an escalation of crisis and isolation. Yeah, it's a very, very tough time. One of our assets is that more than half of our staff are formerly incarcerated themselves. So they're role models for hope. And I think the strongest antidote to depression is hope. And when you see somebody who is in worse trouble than you, may have been locked up next to you, and has rebuilt a life, built a good life, there's hope you can do it too. So I think hope is our greatest asset and our unwillingness to give up on people and the lifetime of commitment we make to people. Those are our assets. And they're what hold people silent in the midst of a really terrible crunch that is going to get worse. I mean, we're looking at very challenging times. We're looking at a city and a state that are going to be in financial crisis. What tends to get cut are the services to the most vulnerable. We're hoping that our leaders realize that when they say the people getting hit hardest by the pandemic are people who are living crowded, people who are people of color, people who are low income, the normal tendency in times of economic hardship are to cut out the supports to the people who need them the most. My hope is we're not going to see that from our leadership. With the city facing a massive loss in tax revenue because of the coronavirus, Mayor de Blasio is looking to cut funding for the plan to shut down Rikers Island and build four modern jails that's been reported. What are your thoughts around that? My hope and my prayer is that he does not do that. The worst thing to do at a time of crisis is do something that plunges the most vulnerable into greater crisis. Rikers is a superbly expensive thing to do. And I'm not only talking about dollars. It's a six-figure cost to lock people up. I don't know how you put a price on the human damage that Rikers does. And I'm saying not only to the people who get locked up, but to their families and their communities. When those families and those communities are going to be in crisis, we need to be investing in bringing everybody home safe. You know, that ship image, you don't throw your most vulnerable over there. You protect them. My hope is that our city will live up to its values and be there for the most vulnerable. And Rikers Island is a terrible thing to do to people. So my hope is we don't give up on what was and is a really gutsy move to take what is the second largest penal colony in the world and say, that's not worthy of us. I think we've seen vision. We've seen opportunity. We have seen, here's what's exciting. We are at the lowest level in jail population since we started escalating incarceration. We're talking about the 1930s and the 1940s since we had numbers this low and crime is low too. And spending on Rikers could be cut dramatically as we emptied those beds. So I don't want to see us give up a victory at a time where we need it the most. 
What are among the criminal justice reforms that you see as high priority right now? I think holding the line on bail reform is key. Holding the line on discovery is key. Making incarceration be a last resort instead of a first resort is key. And working against the discrimination that we see. We've learned to fight discrimination because if somebody's discriminating against our population in housing, in employment, they are frustrating our mission, which means we can be institutional plaintiffs and we can sue. And we've partnered with civil rights law firms to sue people who are discriminating against our folks. And we're changing policy, not only locally, but nationwide. So we're very excited about that. We are fighters. We enjoy a good fight for justice. And there are going to be those fights escalating. What are among your greatest success stories, those that you like to point to? The ones that really move my heart is where I see somebody come out of incarceration, angry, hurt, hopeless, and to see them find their way. So we do something, we start our meetings with what we call mission moments. And there are moments that remind us of why we do this work. And one of the most recent is that I told you we opened new housing. We're calling it Freedom House. And we had somebody waiting for a bed there. He was sleeping on the subway. And when he was told the room was available for him, he broke into tears. You know, those are the things that keep us going. It, it's those individual stories. And then every once in a while, we have a policy win. And we celebrate it because we know it's going to make a huge difference in people's lives. So we work both ends of the mission, the policy end and the human end. But the biggest wins are on the human end. What was your last big policy win? There were a bunch. The Target settlement that we just announced is a huge one because it's about giving people a fighting chance to get and hold a job based on merit without being discriminated against because of record. Uh, recent one was that we sued a major Queens landlord for doing blanket discrimination against people with records. And we got an over a million dollar settlement, which we think will be a deterrent to landlords who discriminate because they don't want to get hit in their pocket. Uh, bail reform, huge win. Even though some of it's been scratched back, uh, it's still a huge win. Closing Rikers, it doesn't get bigger than that. And the idea that we're talking about dramatically lowers numbers of people undergoing that damage. So we've had a lot of policy wins recently. I'm not used to that. I, I've been doing this work for more decades than most investors. We've seen more policy wins in the last couple of years than I can remember. And that's exciting because that's about, it's about many, many lives not being damaged. What's the history of the Fortune Society? I understand it started with a play. It started with a play called Fortune in Men's Eyes which was a play about a young man's experience in prison, written by a young man who'd experienced incarceration. Uh, it had a pretty brutal rape scene in it. And David Rothenberg, who founded Fortune, had a talk back as part of the play. And one day somebody stood up and challenged the reality that they saw on stage. And somebody else stood up and said, let me tell you about my experience in prison. That became part of the play. There was a talk back after it. And the David Susskind show, which was the first real talk show, 
picked up this story. And when David Rothenberg went back to his office after that show, there was a line of people looking for help after getting out of prison. So we started that way. And we've actually grown that way by the needs of the people who walked in on doors. We've evolved a whole set of services around that. And when I started, we had 20-something people on staff. Now we're at about 300. And we serve about 8,000 people a year. So, yeah, we've evolved over time and evolved our services. But the spirit of the place, that more than half the people working there have done time themselves, that we look at people and we see the best that's in them, that we say we're with you and it's a long-term commitment and we make a lifetime commitment to people, those things haven't changed at all. Is that a mission of the organization that you work to make sure you're hiring formerly incarcerated individuals? It's actually in our bones. It's not a mission, it's who we are. Uh, so by bylaw, a third of our board is people who are formerly incarcerated. I don't think we could do as good a job. So we do affirmative action for people for rec with records. If we have two equally qualified candidates on all other spectrum, we believe life experience really matters and we'll hire the person with the record. And you know, the leadership of the agency, uh, it's me and it's a gentleman named Stanley Richards. He did time, I didn't. The two of us add up to a lot. And I think it's that diversity, actually. You know, David Rothenberg never did time, but the people who started the organization with him did. And I think we feed off each other, and we teach each other, and we learn from each other. Joanne, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This was a pleasure to talk to you. And if we can help people, just reach out to us. Joanne Page is the president and CEO of the Fortune Society. More info at fortunesociety.org. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Maddie Bristow. And thank you so much for listening.